Welcome to another thought-provoking episode of Uncovering the Civil War, a podcast series that uncovers a deeper understanding of the American Civil War and Reconstruction and how they still affect us today. And now, here is your host, author of The Ones They Left Behind, Antonio El Male. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Uncovering the Civil War. I'm Chandra Years, one of the producers of Uncovering the Civil War, and today we're going to do something different. This marks the end of the first season of Uncovering the Civil War, and we're going to take a look back at the overarching themes of our podcast with a conversation with our host, Antonio Amale. Welcome, Antonio. Thanks for having me. You've had at least three careers in your life. You've been successful in the entertainment industry, real estate, venture capital, to name just a few. Of all the many topics that obviously catch your interest, why the Civil War? I started becoming fascinated with the Civil War when I was a young kid, let's say seven. And I like to tell the the anecdote that while my friends were reading Mad Magazine and Alfred E. Newman and more age-appropriate materials, I was uh, looking at Matthew Brady photograph books, battlefields and, and, and all this stuff about the war. And uh, I think it just mirrored some inner conflicts that I might have had within my own family. You know, every family has its own, you know, stresses and strains. And, and you could say that a civil war is a war in the national family. So I think there was resonance that way. But I, as I said, I can't remember when I wasn't really a student of this conflict. And is this lifelong interest what inspired you to write your novel, The Ones They Left Behind? Well, it certainly was behind it, but I discovered, a, having read as much as I've read over the last decades, to stumble across a story that was true, that was as astonishing as uh, uh, the journey of this particular Union uh, soldier after the war. I just felt that it was a story that deserved to be told because, number one, it was so brazen, so courageous, and seemingly so insane but more because nobody had ever heard of it. I mean, it's it just one of those astonishing moments in history that uh, have, that have been uh, not uncovered until now. So I used that frame of that journey to, to create a story that reflected what it will take for our country to heal. And if any of our listeners haven't read the novel, I urge you guys to run out and go get it now. It's, it's really worth reading. So Antonio, what role, if any, did your experiences writing the novel play in influencing you to create this podcast? It started with doing um, talk shows, uh, some interviews, and one of my friends happened to listen in and said, you know, you really are good at, at answering questions and engaging with people. You want to have your own show. And just mm-hmm. as I never conceived of ever writing a novel that was not anywhere in my radar um, in terms of when I was looked out at what I want to do in my life. So was being a, a podcast uh, host. They two, the two came kind of, kind of out of the blue. How did you come up with the name Uncovering the Civil War? Well, it is, I think, safe to say that the Civil War is the most written about event in our history. And yet, there's always more to, to learn about it. And also, I felt that uh, the teaching of, his, uh, of that war has been, has been lacking. 
And so my goal was to not focus so much on casualties and the battles and the things that people might, Appomattox and things that people might have learned in their history classes, but to, to see how this, this conflict touched the, the uh, America on every single level, social, political, even sexual, literature, drama, every layer of American society was powerfully transformed by this conflict. And looking back at the episodes that we put out, I noticed there seemed to be a few themes that reoccurred over the season, and I'd love to get your thoughts on them. Sure. And the first theme I thought about was, you know, we set the stage for the war. In several of the episodes, you and your guests talk about the events and confluences that helped usher in the conflict. And I'm thinking specifically, one episode that comes to mind is um, number 109, which we entitled Follow the Money, Uncovering How Banking Financed Slavery. You and your guest, Dr. Sharon Ann Murphy, took a long, hard look at our financial institutions. And there really is an inseparable connection between money and slavery before and during the Civil War. And you guys also discussed how the war led to today's modern banks. I know the confluence of banking and slavery is a topic near to your heart. What's what is the one insight you'd like listeners to take away from this episode? I think it is that if we want to use another metaphor, everybody got their hands dirty on the institution of slavery. It is very clear from certainly what Dr. Murphy presented on the program and other reading that banks were intimately uh, connected with the financing and uh, maintenance of the slavery system. And you could say for one crude but simple reason, slavery was legal up until 1863. Mm. It was the law of the land. So some, you know, you could argue that banks didn't think they were doing, they might have been, it might have been morally reprehensible, but legally and most importantly for their bottom lines financially, it was highly lucrative. So I think that the, the banking system has probably escaped some scrutiny on, on this particular count. Uh, that's part of uncovering. You know, we're uncovering how this war touched all the different institutions, and that included not just the, the domestic banks, but the, the London banks. Now, the English had a, a slave system, and they didn't ban it until 1830, but that didn't stop right. them from financing, you know, interna international operations, so to speak. Uh, there was just too much money to be made. Do you think things have changed since the Civil War when it comes to banks maintaining kind of this inequitable social status quo because it's lucrative? Well, I think you see things like redlining certain districts and, you know, people of color having trouble getting loans, although it would never be admitted as being discriminatory because now the laws have become much more, much more tightened and there's more scrutiny around this. But I think it's also safe to say that, uh, the financial institutions certainly did not let go easily to some of the uh, more restrictive policies that they've been practicing for, for many years. And again, they would argue that it was all up until 1863 was all legal. However, that's, it's not legal now. And yet it's one of those many resonances of the, of the war that still, still uh, echoes through our society today. In another episode that also touched on people of color and our history leading into the war was episode um, 115, Uncovering a Long Trail of Tears. Your guest, yeah. Dr. Clarissa Confer, discussed how the Cherokee Nation, which had just suffered the Trail of Tears, was swept into what 
truly became a brother's war for its members. Why was it important to you to include the Native American perspective on the war in the podcast? Why do you think we needed to uncover this corner of American history? Because it's a crucial cornerstone of American history. And because the Native American experience in, in connection with the white man has been, a, has been a very troubling one and one could almost say a really just destructive one. And so as part of the spirit of looking at all the ways in which the conflict touched uh, every level of society, every class of peoples, I think it was important to include uh, the Native American uh, experience. And I chose, you know, the Cherokee Nation was a very well-defined nation. It actually had a constitution patterned on our Declaration of Independence. It had a capital you know, it met in sessions. So the nation was actually well organized. And then the war came along and both sides, North and South, exploited internal divisions within the tribe, mostly to grab more men and, and throw right. them into the fight. But of course, they they were trying to appeal to the, you know, the higher callings of, of the Cherokees, which of course, I don't think was was true. Yeah, um, I just want to go back a little bit. You, um, when we were talking about banking, you mentioned the London banks, and that reminded me that our first episode was about uncovering Europe's role in the Civil War, and this was an, a fascinating episode to me, not only because it was our first one, but because I never thought of the Civil War as an international conflict, but of course it was, as we talked about. You and Dr. Don Doyle went over how the war was not just the U.S. clash, but was viewed abroad as part of a much bigger struggle for democracy in general. And, you know, now it appears democracy is in another fight, both here in the U.S. and abroad. What are your thoughts on the parallels between the 19th century and today? Do you think we're locked in another war for the future of democracy? Yes, there's no question. You know, it's uh, the thing that was so stunning about uh, that episode to me was just how resonant our struggle was to the essentially the ruling classes of Europe that anybody who had you know suffered under the uh, the, the regime of a czar a king an emperor in Europe knew full well that a lot was at stake if if this ex- experiment in democracy across the water uh, were to succeed and so I think that there was an emotional resonance, certainly. And then there later became a physical connection where, by a, I think by the end of the war, something like 450,000 non-English-speaking immigrants were fighting on the Union, uh, in the Union Army. And that, that had to play a, a significant role in the ultimate uh, victory of the Union. You know, what we have come to appreciate the Statue of Liberty was not what France had in mind when they gave us that beautiful statue. Quite, quite a different one. So you have to listen to the episode to find out. That's episode 101, Uncovering Europe's Role in the Civil War. It's our first episode. Um, you were just talking about the immigrants to America. And of course, you know, we, when we think about our history, we think about the fact that we're founded because people were escaping religious persecution. And it was, you know, the Puritans who came to, the, to North America, to the colonies. And of course, that was a Protestant movement. And one of the episodes that we looked at was episode 108, Uncovering the Second Great Awakening, which was another Protestant revival. And Dr. Ron White joins you to talk about this and how it informed the social attitudes before, during, and after the Civil War. 
And of course, that's another parallel, you know, not only to the founding of the country, but also to today as evangelical Christians are increasingly flexing their political muscle. Do you think there's another great awakening occurring today? I'm not sure that it would be taken in the context of a religious awakening. I certainly think there's a consciousness awakening as we begin to look at ourselves more objectively and hopefully not practice what I call fuzzy history that we are, you know, we have, we have more courage to look in the mirror at some of the darker strains of our history and, and face them honestly. The Protestant revival that swept the country was, a, was a, an amazingly powerful movement, but it, I think it also died, died out rather quickly too. It was like a, a wildfire. And um, I think the, the awakening that's happening now is uh, much broader. It involves more people and it's not broken down by religious classifications. It's more the awakening of what it means to be an American citizen and what, what, that, what our obligations as a citizen are to our country. Oh, I like that. I like thinking about it that way. But let's go back to the history and, and let's talk about the Second Great Awakening itself. What do you think it did to influence the war? And do you think there's any lessons that we should heed from it? Well, I think it, what it did was it it it, it helped to cement uh, a partisan political gridlock in the Congress. These forces on the religious level also had political uh, uh, consequences to them, which led to particular stances on all kinds of issues. And slavery and emancipation was front and center. So the use of religion to justify certain uh, behavior is it's probably as old as the hills but uh, but but it's still another way in which our political paralysis that we see, that we're experiencing as we speak has roots in a certain inflexibility you know both sides of the awakening were absolutely steadfast in their conviction that they were right that god was on their side well, God can't be on all sides all at once, or if he is, that's a good game. I'd like to learn how to do that myself. But, but it, what I'm saying is that it, it, it just, that kind of steadfast digging your heels in, whether you be Protestant or Catholic or uh, evangelical or whatever, leads to in political intractability, the inability to compromise. And we see that, we see that, you know, it's right in front and center right now. Well, I was going to say, speaking of political intractability, today we see that play out, like I mentioned before, you know, struggles over the Supreme Court to the point that the Senate Majority Leader refused to allow hearings on Supreme Court nominee in the last year of a sitting president's term because of this political inflexibility. And, you know, if you go on Twitter, you look around the Internet, there's also a lot of talk of a, you know, quote, constitutional crisis being thrown around. but as we've learned on the podcast, the Civil War was a true constitutional crisis. I mean, the country was fighting each other. The states were fighting each other. And in episode 116, you speak with Dr. Jonathan W. White about Abraham Lincoln's tense relationship with his Supreme Court. How did those two branches of the U.S. government work together or not during the Civil War? And again, do you see parallels to today? Well, I think we always have to remember the context in which Lincoln was struggling with the Supreme Court. You, we always have to keep 
remembering that slavery was the law of the land. So as duly appointed uh, officials of the uh, of the judicial branch of government, there is very strong precedent for upholding the law of the land. And what happens when the Constitution starts to get stretched or gets interpreted in new ways, or in fact the law the laws of the land become so completely unpopular that they need to be changed, then the Supreme Court moves, but it moves very slowly. It's always taking its role very seriously as a supreme judicial arbiter of the U.S. Constitution. You know, to your question of a constitutional crisis, it's not we're not in a crisis yet now, but we're headed for one because there's all kinds of things that have never happened before in our history involving the current U.S. president and uh, you know the the, the the different corollary investigations that are that are uh, swirling around him. So we're headed for uncharted waters. I think that Lincoln's relationship with the Supreme Court was very simple. He chose to listen to them when it suited him. And when they <laughs> went, went against him, he just ignored them and didn't make a fuss about it. He was very deliberate about picking his fights with the Supreme Court. Number one, because he thought he would lose in the courts. <laughs> because the slavery, as an example, was the law of the land. So on what constitutional grounds could he actually try to to overcome, you know, to overturn those? You know, the Fugitive Slave Act, which between that and Dred Scott were the two most, I think, incendiary right. cases that led to the certainly set the tone for the, you know, the the fury between two sides. They were uh, they were just upholding the law, and yet the moral um, repugnancy of those laws. Over, uh, ultimately trumped the uh, the legality. You know, speaking of the laws of the land, kind of, you know, that kind of leads into people's day-to-day lives. And that was a second theme that I noticed we developed during the podcast. We discussed how people, you know, lived their lives. We talked about medicine during the war, theater during the war, letter writing during the war, even the role of the press during the war. We even took a look at pornography during the war. And we spoke to female reenactors who bring to life how women lived during the war. One thing that became clear to me, at least over the episodes, is that the war drove technological and scientific advancements maybe faster than if there, had, if there hadn't been a war. This, of course, was most obvious when we spoke with David Price and Jake Wynn from the National Museum of Civil War Medicine in episode 104. What are your feelings about the dichotomy of these incredible medical advances being made but at the expense of our country's bloodiest conflict. Uh, sad to say, but that's what combat medicine is. It, you know, that form of medicine needs combat. It needs casualties. It needs, you know, it needs to have something to, to, that it has to, to, has to help heal. I think what, what became so clear was not simply the technological advancements, but the sheer volume of casualties that the war produced. Remember, up until very early in the war, and certainly in the run-up to, and maybe even in the first six months of the war, the general feeling was it would be over in 90 days. Terms right, of enlistment right. were, were very short because they said this is going to be all this, you know, we're going to fight one battle and they're going to run. You know, and this is unfortunately the Union's attitude much more so than the Confederacy's. So when that became 
it became clear that wasn't going to happen and that this is going to be a slugfest, we were not prepared for it. You know, the country was simply not prepared for So it's the classic saying, you know, necessity breeds invention. You know, the medical system, I think in the program, uh, they said that 99% of all doctors had never treated a gunshot wound until the Civil War. I mean, you know, yeah. or that there were like 12,000 hospital beds in the entire country. And by the end of the war, there were something like 350,000. That the yeah. sheer avalanche of, of catastrophic bloodletting forced a system that was woefully unprepared to deal with anything like that to adjust and ultimately to pioneer some astonishing practices, best practices that are very much part of today's, uh, you know, everything from the design of hospital wings to the the discovery of timed anesthesia, you know, even that lovely vignette about the Confederate boy who had his knee shot, shot his leg shot off at the knee. He comes home, goes upstairs and doesn't get come out of his room. And his parents are terrified that he's going to, they're going to walk in one day and find him hanging from a beam. But he keeps asking for nails and pieces of leather. And weeks later, they hear these footsteps on the, on the stairs and down comes this 19 year old, totally uneducated boy. And he's just developed the first prosthetic limb. And that boy's name is on the name of, to this day, one of the leading manufacturers of prosthetic limbs in the United, in the world. So, you know, you can't, you cannot underestimate the, the value of unmitigated catastrophe, you know, to, to force changes that otherwise would not have occurred had we just kind of rolled along innocently and, um, you know, gone right. our way. Yeah, that is one of the, I guess, sad dichotomies, ironic dichotomies that takes a lot of life to, uh, it takes a lot of loss of life but to create life-saving technology for the future. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, it goes to the point about the weaponry. You know, in, in another episode, we talked with a gentleman who had been, um, I think he was a, a, a National Park Service guide, specifically, you know, responsible for firearms training. And he he gave us a, an education in how the, the military tactics, the, essentially the Napoleonic, military tactics when they collided with the advent the advent of the rifled musket everything had to change because the the ranges of the, both these rifled muskets and the cannon meant that you couldn't just line up in a battle line and hope that the you know, more of your guys you know were there to blow holes in the other guys it just that, that whole system of tactics became sadly uh, outdated at the loss of a lot of lives you know so the technology uh you know of weaponry and you know the technology of a lot of things you know all came about as a result of this conflict i know that in uh, the pornography program the you know it wouldn't have burgeoned the way it had without the invention of the camera and photography yeah, I was going to say that, um, you know, that was episode 108 where we talked to Jim Burgess from the National Park Service. Um, he's a museum specialist at Manassas um, National Battlefield Park, and he's the one who talked to us about the weaponry 
of the Civil War. He, you know, part because part of his duty is supervising the park's historic weapons program of musket and artillery firing demonstrations. And you just mentioned pornography. And I was going to say, talk about something that where, you know, necessity is the mother of invention or vice versa. Um, <laughs> when it came to our two-part series with Dr. Judith Giesberg, um, and she did point out, like you mentioned, that the Civil War coincided with the rise of photography and also the ability to produce cheap books for the first time. Right. So, of course, <laughs> what do you do when these, when these two technologies um, coincide with thousands of young men being away from home and stationed together in camps with lots of downtime? Um, right. Obviously, people are going to create and distribute illicit materials, lots right. of illicit materials. But as we talked about on the podcast, that didn't necessarily make the people back home very happy when they discovered these materials were being being sent hither and yon, especially throughout our um, our postal service. I really enjoyed this discussion. I thought it was really fun. And speaking of the postal service, I think that was one of the most surprising things I learned that it actually led to the Comstock laws, where making the um, use of the post service for the mailing of pornography, for lack of a better word, made that illegal. What was your favorite thing about or intriguing discovery about this episode? I found the I found it extraordinarily amusing that people who wrote these so-called purple books had to thread a very fine line between the censor who was always on the lookout for quote salacious materials and reaching out to the soldier, you know, their market in a way that they would get very easily get what kind of a book it was. So I think my favorite moment is uh, when we talked about some of the titles that these authors came up with <laughs> to to thread that fine line, and one of which was storming the enemy's breastworks. You know, <laughs> any soldier knows what breastworks are; they're fortifications. But the purple interpretation makes it clear what it's really about, and. Uh, then I think there was another carte de visite where they had a picture of John Brown. <laughs> and, oh, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if, you, if my listeners ever remember Mad Magazine, at the very back of the magazine, there was a pullout so that you could put the face of Alfred E. Newman on anything. So in this particular carte, de, you know, or postcard, whatever you want to call it, there's a picture of John Brown, the famous abolitionist, and the caption reads, how John Brown was hung. And when you pull <laughs> down, lo and behold, there in glorious detail is John Brown's private parts. Yeah, so the, the sense of humor that these authors portrayed to kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. But, you know, on a more serious level, you mentioned some of the uh, ramifications of this material. It also fostered the first attempt by the government to open the uh, citizens' mail. Uh, mm, so there was a right. very serious, serious, uh, what you might call an infringement of civil liberties. Never had it been contemplated that the post office could open private correspondence in searching for these, these books or these, uh, these postcards. So, uh, and then... I th one of the things I, I thought was fascinating about our discussion was how the revert, the roles of men and women took up a, a serious reverse, not a reversal so much, but a serious re reevaluation. You know, what it meant to be brave 
as a man, what was the definition of virility and what it meant to be a woman in the war. These, these, these traditional roles got really re-examined by, again, by necessity. And, right. you know, it's just fascinating to think about those repercussions of sexual identity and, and uh, uh, the power of sexual politics over you know, human relations is every much, uh, you know, every bit in play. We, and we did have a couple of episodes where we did kind of focus on uh, women and women's place in society at the time and how the war affected that or changed um, the role that women saw themselves playing in society. And we had a panel discussion with three female Civil War reenactors in episode 104, in which we talked about the various roles women were assigned and sometimes they transgressed during the war. And in episode 120, um, we uncovered theater during the Civil War, and your discussion with Dr. Elizabeth Mullinex focused on Breach's roles, and Breach's roles were um, roles that were male roles, they were men, but they were played by actresses, and, they were, and that was very, very popular, these actresses who um, would take on Breach's roles, and how seeing these actresses play the, role, the parts of men actually led, directly led to a call for women's rights in the suffrage movement. I, I've lost track to this day. I think at least five women have seriously announced, have serious bids for the Democratic nomination for president. So right now we're, we've got a, shine, a, a brighter spotlight than ever before shining on women's roles in, in our culture. So mm -hmm. what lessons from the 19th century do you think we've already learned? And what lessons do we still need to absorb when it comes to women in society and the challenges we all face? Well, I think on one level, when you, I, I would say that when there's a national catastrophe, all kinds of lines blur. You know, I think specifically of women who dressed up as men and joined up to fight. And you didn't see men turning them in. The calculation was if, if this person, if this woman is prepared to fight next to me in the foxhole and potentially lay down her life for me, uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, in another uh, part of society, it was, it was deeply frowned on. That's not a woman's role. And, you know, just as those reenactors were, were complaining about the role of some reenact of uh, some women being, you know, forced to leave camp um, because they didn't portray, uh, you know, the image of Tara, you know, Scarlett O'Hara, these women were being barred from, reenactments today for this, you know, for kind of bogus reasons. Why? It goes to that, that it's almost like baked in the DNA that there are, there's these old established attitudes about what's the rightful place of a man and the rightful place of a woman, especially when it came to uh, the military. Now, of course, women are routinely in combat and, and lay down their lives and give every bit as much as men do. So that's changed. But uh, it had to start somewhere. And I think it may have actually started with, you know, the women of the, the Civil War era basically cutting their hair and bounding themselves up <laughs> and yeah. uh, going off to war because they felt it was the right thing for them to do. And they had a right to do it as an American citizen, as any man. And of course, that leads to where we are now, where what you just mentioned, that, that, that a lot of these old established, you know, conventions are, are uh, coming down. 
I was also just thinking back to our pornography episode and we talked about the Comstock laws and how that was, you know, the Comstock laws were originally developed to stop the spread of pornography through the mail, but then they got turned into a way to stop people from discussing birth control. One of the surprising things that came out of that episode was to discover that the AMA, the American Medical Association, uh, got its start during the Civil War. And it did so because it was trying to invade on a part of American society, i.e. home care and homeopathic medicine as the tried and true methods of treating most people in this country to licensed doctors who had to go through examinations and were supposedly therefore more qualified than the uh, the homeopathic practitioner, you know, sprinkling herbs and, and all kinds of herbal remedies, you know, in their cures. And that they needed some, uh, uh, basically a flag to plant on, plant their their this so-called new medical expertise. So they became a, a very vocal advocate of uh, against abortion. And that's how the AMA got started. Now you you'd be hard pressed to find <laughs> most any doctor who would hold to that notion. But it just shows you how how times change and how things have flipped around. And I know I keep bringing up the post office. But, of course, illicit materials and materials about birth control and abortion weren't the only things being sent through the mail back then. And, you know, letters written during the Civil War have almost become synonymous with the war itself. I think thanks to Ken Burns' documentary, you see people parody Civil War letters all the time. But in episode 122, you and your guest, Christopher Hager, take a real deep dive into the psychology of letter writing and how these letters were used to maintain personal connections that had never, ever before been under so much strain. It was a really affecting episode. Is there one letter or anecdote that stands out the most to you? Well, the, the letter that, uh, that closed the show. Mr. Hager said, I chose this letter out of the thousands that, I pour, that I've poured through in, in my research simply because of how mundane it was, how very ordinary it was, how it just spoke of things that you and I would, could relate to. You know, mom's strawberry jam and, and tell cousin so-and-so hello for me. And, and then closing, of course, with the, the prayer that if he's taken away, uh, they'll meet again. And it's that kind of, but I think to your point about what was so profound about this exercise is you have to remember that most Americans came from farms. They didn't have, if they had a, a reading, writing, and arithmetic education, it was probably few and far between. So I would say the majority of, uh, of American men in that age group didn't know how to write or read. So the act of writing, physical writing a letter was, was a huge step. But then, more to the point, they're now thrust into these incredible circumstances away from home, possibly witnessing unspeakable horrors and carnage, and they have to try to communicate something back to their loved ones, essentially saying, hey, I'm okay, and I miss you, and I wish I were home. You know, the subtext in all these letters is the, the sort of the 800-pound gorilla, which is not only do I wish you were home and your family wishes you home, but I'm also afraid I won't ever get home. There is a 
I called it an emotional road, spiritual and emotional rat roadmap of an entire generation of American men. These letters, mm. because they're forced to reveal, you know, the deepest parts of their of their being, and sometimes with no privacy. If they can't read or write, they have to dictate this. So right. their colleagues, who might be neighbors, and might know exactly who they're talking about, they're in on it. So there's a lot of you know, the leaps to make, to get over uh, with the act of letter writing. But I think the Army of Potomac in the course of the war generated something like, I don't know, what was it, two million letters? I mean, just an, an astronomical, you know, that's, that's like one every day for three years amongst the 160,000. It's a huge volume of letters. And, and the post office was able to somehow managed to keep that stream going, even though some days a letter would arrive out of sequence to another letter, and you'd never know where you were in the conversation. You know, we don't have, they didn't have timestamps like email to, to show, okay, well, this was, I said this on this date, but a letter might arrive three days or three weeks later than the one before it, and you don't know what the context is. So there's a lot of, you know, there's just a lot of uh, hoops to, to jump through. And, but but they did it um, in huge numbers. I mean, everybody, mail call was a sacred, that and chow were two sacred times. And you better leave somebody alone if they didn't get a letter from home. <laughs> you mentioned email earlier, you know, and today that pretty much has, well, that and texting have pretty much replaced letter writing. Do you think we've lost something precious or not? I do. I think it goes in hand in hand with the with the fractured concentration that the, of the, of the <laughs> multitasking American, you know, between the cell phone and all these other, all this uh, information that's coming at you from all these different directions, it's very, very hard to be introspective. Uh, it's all about what's happening in the moment. You don't really dive into how you're feeling about a particular experience. You report it. Well, you know, with letter writing, it's the reverse. You have time to reflect. You have to time to edit. If you don't like it, cross it out, start again. You know, how many times within an email, especially in business, have, have people gotten all bent out of shape because the tone of voice of the email <laughs> is, is, is driving them into misunderstanding because they can't see, well, they can't feel, they can't see the person, and they can't hear their tone. With a letter, all of that stuff goes away. You, you get a much more unvarnished look at what the person is experiencing. And I think losing that introspection is, uh, is, a, is a major casualty of uh, heightened technology. And yes, I think we've lost something rather, rather precious that way. You know, you did talk about how letters were a way of conveying that person's essence to the reader. And of course, that was a big way that people back home were able to stay in touch with their loved ones or people on the battlefield were able to stay in touch with people back home. But of course, letters weren't the only way people that weren't at the battlefront were able to um, you know, keep track of what was going on in the war. The press was played a huge role in letting people know what was happening, versus, um, letting people know what was happening on the battlefields and what was happening in Washington. We did a three-part series called Uncovering the Press During the Civil War. When we looked at how the Union newspapers covered the war versus how the Confederate papers reported the same events, 
And then we discussed with Dr. David Saxman about propaganda, fake news, censorship, journalistic ethics, and objectivity during the war. And of course, those very same topics about the media are very much top of mind. Do you think an unbiased press is important or necessary? I don't think there's such a thing as an unbiased press. I think that's a fool's errand to go chasing after that. Nobody's completely unbiased. You know, anthropologists struggle to to wipe away all pre- preconceived notions of of where they come from in order to see and record the the way another culture that's totally foreign to them operates. But they have a lot of training. You know, the reporter is following the story. And as as a human being, he's going to get swept, he or she's going to get swept up sometime in the emotion of that story, or the, whether, whether it's the injustice of it, uh, the, the cruelty, the beauty, it doesn't matter, but we all, you know, the reporters are human. So totally unbiased, does, it's like, it's, it's one of these standards of way, for which no one should, can really reasonably be held accountable. Yet we do. There's this, this idea that, you know, the truth should be unvarnished and free of all personal feelings about it. I just think it's it's pretty hard to be completely above the fray when you when you're reporting on the human condition the way they are. So I don't know. Does that answer your question? I don't know if it does. <laughs> well, I think it does. I was actually thinking um, maybe we should also remind the viewers kind of what we kind of what the key takeaways were about how the Union papers um, reported the war versus how the Confederate papers um, reported the war. Uh, the advent of publishing casualty lists was a huge step. And I can't remember who introduced it into the paper, but it became the most sought after. Everybody who read a paper and newspaper readership was at a, was at a high amongst these, certainly the educated uh, class of Americans. That's the first thing they went to for obvious reasons. So, there's an example of how the institution of the press actually played, I think, a, a very powerful and significant role in bringing the war more immediately to, to the American people, much the way, same way that photography did, uh, you know, with mm. Matthew Brady as well. And again, bringing the war to people and showing it unvarnished and seeing it in all of its cruelty and barbarity and and also beauty and path, you know, all the things that war elicits in, in people. So I don't think that, I think that the, the union papers certainly had the benefit of better technology. They had more of everything. And I think that a lot of those papers, you know, were able to, to survive simply because the union won. I mean, the Confederacy was busy trying to, they had a different, they had a different a challenge. I think the union papers, for the most part, were trying to bolster morale and keep the, the the will to fight going. At least, certainly amongst the papers that supported Lincoln, there was also a reverse notion of, of of Northerners who wanted the war to be settled and you know let the South go and be done with it. The South had to fight a holding action, and so their their task was somewhat different and. There, the stretches of imagination were quite, quite remarkable. I remember the headline of one Louisiana newspaper announcing that Jubal Early had captured 
Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, it was patently false, but it was meant to prop up, you know, you know, keep the Southern will to fight alive when everywhere they looked, there wasn't any bread. The railroad system was crumbling, so newspapers were trying valiantly to kind of prop up a losing proposition. So you, fake news and propaganda were every bit, as, every bit as real as they are now. Right. Do you see the – I guess I was just about to ask you about the parallels to today, and especially around the use of fake news. Um, although I think today's fake news is slightly different, but um, I was wondering what your take is. Well, the term fake news was is very is a fairly new term, and it, it very new. I mean, fake news was not considered fake news; it was considered, you know, propaganda-ish or bending the truth. There were certain conventions that the press used to operate under. Here we have a president who's under the, the shadow of suspicion for his uh, his out of the marriage shenanigans, but FDR. Uh, it was well known yeah. that he had a private life. Now, why why did the press not go to town on him? I think one reason was there was a, there was an understanding that you know his private life was to some extent not anybody's concern, and more to the point, he had a war to fight and a depression to fight. So burdening him with that would have potentially been you know uh, irresponsible. I don't even know the answer quite why hands, you know, FDR was given hands off or even JFK, another person who had, you know, you know it's well known about his uh, extramarital activities. The press treated him with kid gloves. And now you wouldn't do that. There's no such thing. You know, the, <laughs> the smell of scandal is, is what everybody's after. You know, it's kind of the first thing people look for. All right, well, how dirty is he? What's, what's the dirt? And I think that's sad. I think it's a, it breeds a certain kind of a cynicism, a distrust in government, which I think has roots in other things in our history. Uh, Watergate and Vietnam kind of sort of jump out immediately as uh, places in our history where the government actively lied for years and years and years. Um, so, but this doesn't help. You know, looking yeah. for the dirt. You know, it's like that's, that we were talking about the standard of accountability being unrealistic. You know, politicians are human beings. I mean, should we hold them to this idea that they're to be absolutely spotless in their personal behavior? That's a pretty, you know, that, that's, that's nice, nice to think that way, but is it, is it reasonable? Does it really look at the human being in the role? I don't think so. Does that mean that they get a free pass for carrying on like that? I don't think so either, but there's got to be some kind of a balance. And uh, we're kind of swinging wildly towards, you know, scandal mongering. I guess the role of the free press is to speak truth to power. But anyway, I'm kind of going off into a different direction. And I'm going to pull it back to the podcast. And um, I'm pulling it back to um, the third theme in the podcast that I noticed. And that is looking at the war itself and the, the operations of the war, specifically the military operations of the war. And the first episodes that we did that touched on this was our two-part series, episodes 102 and 103, looking at the CSS Georgia, which was a Confederate ironclad gunship that was intentionally sunk in the Savannah River in 1864 to avoid capture by Union forces. 
And in episode one or two, we spoke to U.S. Navy divers who are engaged in recovering the ship. And episode 103, we spoke to the marine archaeologists who are cataloging and preserving the artifacts. Why did this topic interest you? Why is it so important to preserve the past? I mean, this is a ship from the Confederacy. Do we, do we need to preserve that? Well, remember, the name of the show is Uncovering the Civil War. So we literally <laughs> uncovered the Civil War, you know, buried in the, buried in the silt of the Savannah River. A note, but, but, but I think uh, to your question, why was it important? Well, to this day, the U.S. Navy considers the Confederate ironclad an enemy warship, which is an interesting distinction, but one. So in other words, they would assign the same importance to excavating and possibly resurrecting that, uh, that wreck or uh, artifacts from that wreck as trying to raise a sunken Russian sub off of Martha's Vineyard. It's something that, that is, and, and because it came in our, in our war, it holds even more, more, uh, more uh, resonance uh, for the divers. I remember one really powerful moment where, you know, they're diving in coffee-colored water. They can't see, they can't see their hands, and the currents are vicious. I mean, they, he talks about one of the divers talks about being anchored on a pole and literally looking like a flag because he's he's literally, you know, being pulled, you know, laterally. Yeah. off the ground and he's hanging by his hands because the current is so strong. So the conditions in spite of the depth, which is no more than 50 feet are every bit as perilous as what they normally would do, which be, you know, taking mines out of the red sea and all these, you know, foreign waters. I mean, this is an elite uh, Navy diving unit, but they consider this a, a very high and noble task because it's, it's artifacts of our war. And I remember this one moment where uh, one of the divers said, you know, I was pulling, pulling stuff out of the, uh, out of the, out of the earth. And I discovered a, an artillery shell. And it, it hit me in that moment, very hard that this is an American shell made by Americans to kill Americans. And mm. that was a mission that he'd never had to, 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 to go on before. It was always, you know, foreign enemies. Well, we were our own enemies. <laughs> and so the, the irony of that and the danger of, of doing this dive in such shallow waters, it led to a very, I think, a fascinating episode. And then the challenge of taking this stuff that had been lying on the surface of the, of the water for 150 plus years and trying to see if we, they could curate it so that it could go on display as a part of our history. And I remember talking to one of the uh, curators and he discovered there was a, there was a live round, big, you know, six pound or 12 pound rifle uh, musket round, you know, big, that was fused inside of the cannon. And I said, you mean to tell me that that could have gone off? And he sort of chuckled and said, yeah, <laughs> like it was fun. You know, <laughs> this is what he lives for, you know. You know, so, but, you know, so you see how the war touches people on all kinds of profound levels that they may not have even been aware of before they started on their, their explanation of it. Um, so this made a lot of sense to me um, because it was literally uncovering the war. And it was such an in interesting topic with, uh, with uh, the U.S. Navy's uh, elite diving team, you know, basically the, you know, the, uh, the hurt locker 
for the uh, <laughs> unit for the Navy, you know. Um, right. We were very fortunate, very fortunate to, to get them on the show. Um, yeah. And this might actually be a good, um, a good segue um, to talk about our most recent episodes, which are a two-part discussion with Pulitzer Prize recipient James N. McPherson. You and Dr. McPherson talked at length about the strategic roles played by the Union and Confederate navies in determining the outcome of the war. But, you know, when, when, when I went to school and I learned Civil War history, it was, you know, it mostly seemed to focus on the land battles, you know, Bull Run, Gettysburg, Shiloh, et cetera. And then, of course, you learn about the Merrimack and Monitor as if that's the only naval battle that was ever fought during the, during the, the Civil War. So what, why was it interesting to you or why, why did you want to talk to Dr. McPherson about the navies of the Civil War? What do you think we need to understand about, about the navies? Well, I think first and foremost, you have to remember that the modern war is fought on uh, amongst many different services. The Air Force uh, and the infantry are close. You know, the Air Force is flying close support for land operations. The artillery is supplying, supporting fire or barrages to set up a uh, an attack. But all these coordinated eff- are efforts of different branches of the service really got their start in the Civil War, you know, combined Mm. operations, so to speak. You know, the Navy was used extensively in conjunction with the Army to carry on uh, very significant uh, operations, Um, both the blockade of of the, you know, the 1,200 miles of coast, the so-called Blue Water Navy, trying to block you know, supplies coming from the South and cotton going out of the South to pay for that, those supplies. And then just as critically, the Brownwater Navy, which was patrolled the rivers. And it was a totally different kind of Navy, different kinds of ships, different kinds of crews, et cetera, et cetera. But what I found, I mean, I found it endlessly fascinating because I discovered, for example, that the Navy desegregated a year, fully a year before uh, the army did in the Civil War, and I asked why, and he said very, very. It made total sense to me. Well, just remember Moby Dick and and uh, you know Ichab- what's his name uh, Ishmael. You know, there's mm-hmm. a long tradition of blacks, whether they be freedmen or ex runaway slaves, running off and joining the Merchant Marine. Period. End of discussion. So, you know, Navy crews were used to that kind of working side by side. And uh, when I asked, well, were there any racial outbreaks like there might have might have been amongst army units? Certainly there were in the Civil War and and well documented in World War Two. He said no. And the simple reason was you didn't have the room to get into that. I mean, you were on a ship. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't have the room to get into tussles and, and, you know, kind of get into arguments. You know, you might secretly loathe each other, but you had a job to do and you were in close quarters. So the, the mission came first and the Navy, to its credit, recognized that uh, a qualified sailor is a qualified sailor regardless of color. And when I asked him another question about did the Navy suffer from the blight of so-called political generals that the Army did, he said not at all. I mean, the army typically in the early stages of the war would bring on politicians who knew nothing about soldiering, but they, guess what? They could, they could recruit troops. 
So they were basically recru- recruiting tools to fill the ranks of, of the army. The Navy didn't have that. You know, they didn't use them as recruiting tools. You couldn't just jump in and become a captain of a ship. There's just no way. You know, it takes too much skill. So it takes a, a person who's risen up through the ranks, essentially spent their life at sea, honing their craft and learning the ins and outs of, of sailing and, and all of that. And, you know, all, all that other stuff is just is irrelevant. And when I asked him, why, does, uh, why did the land war, has it traditionally gotten way more, to your original question, why did it get more attention? He said, well, every soldier who served, some two million soldiers on the Union side, they became living historians, you know, writing diaries, regimental histories, letters, all these sources became essentially the historical sources for a recounting of the war. The Navy at its at its height had no more than 100,000 sailors. Mm. So they didn't have the benefit of all these kind of talking historians going back home and spreading the word after the war about what role the Navy played. And more than likely, they stayed in the Navy after the war and continued to serve because that was their life. Uh, so it's fascinating, these different these different uh, kinds of things that, that we learn. But I think the overarching um, thing that I took away was that without the Navy, there's no way the Union could have won the war. You know, uh, Professor McPherson says, I don't think that the Navy did win the war, but I certainly think without it, the Union would not have won the war. So, you know, take take from that what you will. But the answer still lies in a very, very significant and, for the most part, historically overlooked role. Speaking of the navies, and, and especially the Brown River Navy, one important military campaign that involved both the navies and the armies was the campaign for Vicksburg. In episodes 124 and 125, you had a really entertaining discussion with Terry Winchell, who's the former chief historian of Vicksburg National Park. Oh, I'm sorry, Vicksburg National Military Park. Why take such an in-depth look at just one military campaign? What can looking at Vicksburg tell us about the greater war and the strategies in play? Well, it was intrinsic to Lincoln and Sherman and Grant's plan to win the war. Uh, You had to choke off the South's internal lifeline. Uh, so for for the for the transport of goods, for communication purposes, for the for moving troops and materiel, and Vicksburg was the spine of the entire Confederacy. So seizing it, and basically seizing New Orleans as, as the Union Navy did, completely unassisted, by the way, with the uh, by the Army, were two strategic victories of that essentially hastened the end of the war simply because with the, with the river, that river uh, in union hands, it was virtually impossible for the Western states of the Confederacy to basically communicate or travel into Eastern theater, the Eastern theater. So the constriction of, of men and, and, and and obviously material from uh, the blockade runners was cut off. And uh, also Vicksburg was uh, considered a jewel. You know, it was also considered the Gibraltar of the, you know, it was virtually inconquerable. So symbolically, 
And the fact that it also fell on July 4th, which is Independence Day, you know, these two things didn't go down too well with the Confederacy. So I chose it, but for a bunch of reasons. One of also was, again, this idea of combined operations. It was the most successful manifestation of the Army and the Navy really working, you know, in close cooperation to achieve a stunning victory that, that took six months to, to pull off. You know, one of the things we forget is that the Vicksburg campaign started well in 1862 and didn't culminate until 1863. That's how valuable a prize it was and how elusive it was to, uh, to, for the Union to get it. It was very difficult. So to, to do it, they needed uh, combined forces and they, they, they performed magnificently in tandem. So I chose that just to highlight the fact that it was, again, the first real evidence of modern warfare being waged. Obviously, the Navy and the Army would not have been successful if they hadn't been fed. And there's an old saying, obviously, you know, <laughs> armies, march on, armies march on their stomachs. And in episode 107, you talked to um, Chef Steven Seiler, who's the author of Hardtack and Haversack, Recipes and Their Stories from the American Civil War, to discuss how soldiers ate during the war. And what, what do you think was the Civil War equivalent of an MRE? Or maybe they didn't have it so oh. bad after all. <laughs> the, well, hardtack. Remember that, that vignette about a, a, union, a Union soldier opening his hardtack. Uh, and on the wrapper, it said uh, 1843. So it's 18-year-old <laughs> bread. You know, that, that tells you all you need. to, And it's, un, it's unedible unless you soak it to begin with. I found it important because it's, again, part of the fabric of our history. These recipes that came out of the war, concocted by essentially farm boys who'd never cooked a meal in their life, you know, they were mama's boys, as Stephen pointed out. You know, they were used to doing farm chores. And when they got home from a long day, working in the fields or coming home from school and then doing their chores, there was a hot meal on the table, which, their, which mom had cooked. Now they're in a strange land uh, and they're trying, they're, they got to cook for their unit or they have to go out and get the food and then cook for their unit. So they've got to learn real quick how to cook something that's hot and on time. Because remember, they say that soldiers don't really care if it tastes good but it better be hot and you better serve it when it's supposed to be served. <laughs> and, and they'll, they'll let a lot, a, lot of go, a lot go by. So I think that, you know, the, the, the adage that Napoleon coined is as true now as it is, as it was then. You know, you, you've got to feed your people. You've got to nourish them and, you know, and take care of them if you want them to perform at their best for you. The, the, you know, and then, you know, when he talked about, how he, where he grew up in South Carolina and the kinds of things he learned just through verbal history, the passing on of, of recipes that were never written down for which there were never any measurements, but grandma would just grab a pinch of that and a handful of that and throw it in there and stir it up and boom, you had something. You know, I think I found that wonderful. And, you know, we're so fixated on food today and fascinated with these slick new cooking shows, we kind of forget mm -hmm. what it must have been like to have no oven, no timer, <laughs> and uh, a lot of times pretty inedible food. I mean, you know, green corn and, you know, green apples, you know, because uh, depending on what time of the year, you had to live off the land. 
you know, these armies are trudging around and, and especially the union armies and they've got to live off whatever, uh, uh, comes from the Southern farm. So if it's not seasoned, you better have some pretty good root vegetables, uh, saved up. And you still also need to take care of your horses. It's not just feeding the soldiers, it's feeding all the animals that drive the artillery battles and the supply wagons. So it's a huge, it's a huge step in logistics. And we've, you know, logistics is underestimated and underappreciated. And when we think of the military and campaigns, it's like, oh, that happened, you know, that all that wonderful gear that you see in the movies that just magically appeared. Oh my God, we've got all the guns we need and all the, well, there's, I think for every combat soldier, there's 10 ancillary support soldiers, basically supplying that one combat soldier, what he or she needs to, to, to go into the fight. So the logistics. So, you know, I was fascinated with that. And uh, just the idea of these people being plucked from their innocent little homes and being forced to cook sometimes inedible stuff, but, you know, they'd learned. And so it's part of the folk, you know, it's that, that, that oral tradition, I think, is very rich. And a lot of those recipes came down simply, you know, somebody writing something down and listening to what grandma was saying. And I think we've lost that. Everything has got, you know, the cookbook industry is thriving and everything's down to the, the millimeter in terms of the time and the temperature settings and all that. We've, we've kind of lost that spontaneous and a sense of adventure of just, all right, well, let's just go for it. Let's try something we never did and see how it goes. But I did think, yep. you know, we probably have lost a little bit of that, of being that close to our food supply. And I think it also brings back the point that the Confederacy probably could not win overall just because they did not have the supplies. And that includes the food to keep their mm-hmm. armies going, whereas the Union had much greater access to supplies and to technology to keep their soldiers fed. Well, remember that the Confederacy was not invading Union territory, except in the ill-fated uh, attempt at, uh, that culminated in the Battle of Gettysburg. So they weren't living off the land uh, the way the Union armies were, because the Union spent most of its time fighting in the South. So they had the advantage both of advanced supply, uh, more more supplies than the Confederacy, and uh, the ability to essentially take whatever they needed from southern farms so it was it was a real mismatch you know confederacy was starving constantly and uh, eventually that was one of the reasons why the the will to fight was broken because there were bread riots in richmond people were refusing to sign up or join or do anything because they were starving and that they saw that their government was doing nothing to solve the problem they couldn't they didn't have the right. capacity to even if they wanted to Right, and that's kind of a lead into the fourth, um, the fourth theme in our podcast, which is the aftermath of the Civil War and Reconstruction. And in my opinion, perhaps no other time period in American history is as misunderstood, while also being kind of like lost over and ignored. So I'm really glad that we have spent quite a few episodes focusing on this. Um, let's start with episode 103 with our guest William Marvel, who came in to talk about Edwin Stanton, Lincoln's Secretary of War. This is a great, I think this is a good lead into this theme, as Stanton was obviously very heavily involved in directing the war, but he also played a large role in Reconstruction. This also happens um, to be one of our most listened to episodes. Why is it so important to uncover who Edward Stanton was, and what legacy did he leave the United States? 
It's important because every war needs a hatchet man, a bad guy. You need to have somebody, if you're the president, who's going to, quote, do the dirty work. If you want to maintain a, a good public standing and perception of you as kind of standing above the fray. Every president has it. Uh, and it's for obvious political reasons. You know, it's, it, 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 leaves, it you know, creates a, a certain kind of distance between the truth of what has to happen behind the scenes and public opinion of the president. Um, Stanton, for whatever reason, fit this bill. Um, he was not very, he was not a happy man. Uh, he was a posturer, deeply insecure, all kinds of reasons not to like him. And, and, you know, truthfully, our guest didn't like him at all. I mean, you know, <laughs> he, he was scathing in his uh, assessment of Stanton as a human being. And yet, you know, the great question is why did Lincoln rely on such an obviously unpleasant guy to, to, to do the things that he did? Well, because Lincoln didn't want to do them. He needed somebody else to do them so that he could both maintain his public, uh, you know, his, the, the impression the public had of him of being kind, kind, gentle Father Abraham and uh, have, a, you know, not get involved in the, the, uh, the dirt of everyday political, you know, wheeling and dealing. It was a very, you know, Lincoln was very practical that way. He was a very astute, but ultimately very practical politician. And uh, he knew what he wanted to do and what he was good at, and he knew what he didn't want to do. So having a Stanton was necessary. I got into terrible trouble with my guests when I tried to draw <laughs> a parallel with, with uh, you know, Truman and FDR and George C. Marshall. And he, he was aghast that I would put... <laughs> <laughs> in the same breath with George C. Marshall. But my point was, didn't, didn't they also rely on Marshall to do a lot of that behind the scenes work? And the answer is yes. Now, it turns out that Marshall was a magnificent man, unimpeachable values, apolitical, whereas Stanton was, was insecure, prone to both temper tantrums and staged, you know, temper tantrums to, 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 to uh, make an impression, a bully, really autocratic, uh, riding roughshod on uh, a lot of civil rights to get, uh, you know, to get what he, what he wanted Lincoln to do. And somebody is kind of like, somebody has to do it. Might as well be you, Ed. You know, he had no political ambitions to be president, uh, interestingly enough. And yet he was one heartbeat away from two presidents. Remember, he was also Johnson's secretary of, uh, of war and led to some legendary clashes between the two. So I think, you know, it's just important to uncover certain figures who've been maybe not given as much, you know, attention because of the roles that they actually played in the mechanics of running the war. Uh, he was, you know, very well organized and very clear in his, he was very protective of Lincoln. And, you know, obviously Lincoln needed that. And you mentioned, you know, Stanton also served under Johnson. Did he leave a particular legacy uh, with regards to Reconstruction? Uh, I can't say legacy because his role is kind of clouded. You never know with, with Stanton whether it was true or it was, it was just him reporting something to make himself look good. You know, he had, a, he had an unpleasant habit of painting himself in rather flattering uh, colors 
uh, that might have flown in the face of other people's recollections of the same set of events. So it's hard to say. Uh, I think the one legacy he does have is that he did he did the dirty work. Right. He got it done, and as a result, you know, a lot of the uh, the uh, kind of insurrectionist sentiment uh, that was rising in, in the country was stifled. Some would say at the cost of our civil liberties, but uh, a lot of things go by the wayside when you're in a national crisis as grave as the Civil War was. So I think his legacy was simply that he was the guy, he was the right guy at the right time, maybe the wrong guy, but at the right time, you know, in terms of his human qualities, but uh, in terms of organizing the war and the lines of communication between the president and the other branches of the government and the recruiting efforts, all this, he was instrumental. And somebody had to do it. Right. Well, Stanton was obviously very controversial, um, but he's not the only controversial figure in U.S. history we talked about. In episode 118, you and your guest, Dr. Ron White, spoke about Ulysses S. Grant. And Grant, of course, was a venerated general of the Union Army during the war, but his record as president, we still argue about to this day. Why do you think there's so much disagreement about Grant, and what can that tell us about this time period in history? Well, I think it it stems from the fact that after the turn of the century, there was a historical movement to basically uh, reinterpret the cause of the war, that the idea that the war was fought over slavery was uh, not really true. And so the no, the idea of the noble lost cause of, of, a, of a group of states fighting for their right to secede because, well, we, we seceded from... The, the King of England, why can't we secede from the government? You know, a very legalistic argument and basically throwing aside the humanistic, moral, and ethical argument uh, of emancipating four and a half million of our uh, uh, slaves. So in this effort, everybody needs a scapegoat. So, of course, who were the principal architects of not only the victory in the Civil War, but of the reconstruction policies that followed. Well, there's one person, Grant, who um, amongst all the Civil War commanders was the most responsible for winning it militarily. And as president, the one who argued the most vociferously uh, for the rights of black ex-slaves and freedmen under the, the newly passed amendments of the Constitution for you know, the 13th, 4th, and 15th Amendments, you know, which were made him a champion uh, and an advocate of civil rights. Well, he's an easy target if you can label him a drunk uh, whose administration was riddled with corruption. And it's mm-hmm. true that uh, in his second term, there was a lot of corruption. He, something went south in his own attention span. I think he, he, he didn't have his eye on all the balls. But at the same token, uh, you can't take away from him what he did do, which was he fought actively to protect uh, freedmen and ex-slaves from the, you know, the avenging clutches of the Klan, actively fought to, you know, keep troops in, uh, in the South until voting rights were firmly established and protected. You know, he was a real champion and he's not, he's not, that, that role is overlooked, but nobody's perfect. And he had questionable choices in terms of his cabinet officials. And yes, ultimately, he was responsible 
for the scandals that besieged his second term. But you still have to remember that as a man who saved the country, uh, he, along with Lincoln, stand pretty high up there as the, the two people most responsible for preserving the Union. And uh, there are people who wished that the Union hadn't been preserved to this day. And so, of course, to them, Grant was a butcher. He threw away his troops needlessly, a, you know, needless slaughter. And right. uh, that's not really who he was. He made a couple of grave mistakes that culminated in undue casualties. But for the most part, he was a superior tactician and uh, always thought of the strategic picture. He always had the larger picture in his mind. And oh, by the way, he was trained as a quartermaster. So he was always good at taking care of his troops. It's like history is in the eyes of not just the winners, but the losers. I, I like to say that the Union won the war and the South won the peace. You know, certainly for 150 years, all through Jim Crow and the, the struggles over segregation and uh, uh, civil rights that we saw, you know, acted out, especially in the 60s. This episode also focused on the friendship between Grant and Mark Twain, which was something that was uncovered for me. I wasn't really aware of it before we did this podcast. Twain decided to publish Grant's memoirs in part to keep the Grant family from poverty. Twain was being a really good friend, and don't we all wish we had a good friend like that? But do you think that was a wise decision from a business perspective? Do Grant's memoirs hold any value? Well, to answer your first question, it turned out to be a brilliant decision on Grant's <laughs> part. And uh, to your second part, his memoirs are still considered among the finest nonfiction, certainly one of the finest memoirs of a, of a general there is. And what I found most fascinating is how these two people from totally opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, Grant is taciturn, man of very few words, doesn't laugh a lot, doesn't talk a lot, you know, keeps his cards close to the vest. And Twain, the storyteller per personified, you know, always larger than life, always has a joke to tell, always the last person, the person to have the last word how these two became friends uh, and, and what went into their friendship is, is, is truly beautiful. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. And yet, of course, people don't really understand it or know much about it. So we uncovered it. And I think, and, my, and to both people's credit, it is, is a, there are a lot of lovely uh, elements to it in terms of loyalty. Now you say he published the memoirs as a favor to Grant as a, well, remember, Twain suffered from financial troubles all his life. He was a big spender and couldn't hold on to the money that he made. And he was having a dry run after uh, Tom Sawyer. He, he didn't have a real so-called hit until Huckable Huckleberry Finn. And one of the most moving moments in the story is to realize that, you know, every novelist looks for a person in their life to pattern some part of the characters that they're drawing from. And, Twain couldn't find that character. And then he just realized that it was standing in front of him all along. It was mm -hmm. Ulysses S. Grant. And, you know, he, he actually, you know, essentially pays tribute to that, that it was Grant, the way he lived his life, and even the way he ran the Vicksburg campaign that paralleled Tom and uh, Jim's, uh, Huckleberry and Jim's, you know, voyage down the river. 
so U.S. Grant is not the only president you uncovered on the podcast. In episode 117, you invited Dustin McLaughlin, curator of Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library Museum, to discuss Hayes' impact then and now. Why was Hayes known as the man in the middle, and do you agree with that assessment? Well, he wasn't the man in the middle, and it's a curious but a powerful distinction. He was a man of the middle. And, and why that's important is he was always seeking to balance seemingly unbalanceable opposites. He firmly believed in, in civil rights, but he was party to probably the most disastrous decision that set back civil rights in the South for a hundred years, you know, i.e. the withdrawal of federal troops. He was a man who didn't seem to have any ambitions to be president, which is unusual. He was a man who was a, you know, had a war record and was a governor, had an established, you know, career as a politician. Uh, yet at the end of his days, said essentially the game is rigged. It's all a big joke. So there are these kind of interesting sidelights, but he's a man of the middle because he was thrust into probably the most painful decision uh, that involved Reconstruction, and that is in the election of 1876 when it was deadlocked. Uh, he became the candidate of enough states to break the uh, the deadlock and be elected. It's not a. It was not because they actively sought him out. It's just that over time, with the convention uh, front runners lead dwindling every time there was another ballot, people were getting desperate to find somebody who could kind of fill fill a hole in the dike. And there was little old Rutherford, uh, you know, kind of the right, maybe the wrong guy, but certainly at the right time. And uh, he made a deal, which essentially said, I'll, uh, if you give me the, the votes to, to win the nomination, I will uh, pull troops out of the South, which spelled the end of uh, the effect of the end of Reconstruction, because those troops were the only thing standing between black freedmen getting the right to exercise their votes and being chased off by the Klan and other white, you know, white supremacists who had no desire to uh, see these 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment uh, act enacted. And so and he held this naive belief that somehow by doing what he was doing, education would eventually be the savior of of this this seeming divide, partisan divide, and it was hopelessly naive. He was naive, and I think my guest actually admitted that, that he was naive, which is strange in a politician. Um, so he was truly a man of the middle, thru thrust in, into the middle of these totally opposite camps and uh, playing a very pivotal role. And only served one term, you know. So he's, he's kind of relegated to the... Uh, the, in the backwaters of history, but but the role that he played in influence in Reconstruction is is huge. Well, and this kind of leads into the fact that we did do several episodes directly focusing on Reconstruction, and we touched on some of those themes that you just talked about. Um, we had a two-part series with um, guest Gregory Downs, where we took a deep look at the Union occupation of the South after the war. And in episode 126, Pulitzer Prize recipient Eric Foner came on the show to take a deep dive into the impact of Reconstruction. Of the failures that, that, that of Reconstruction. 
you know, had those amendments been solidified and actively enforced, there would be a much stronger and deep-rooted tradition of observing those laws. And perhaps the potential for shenanigans wouldn't be as great as we're seeing now, where every every election season there seems to be some, you know, fight over uh, over the actual count and you know vote rigging and all this stuff. You know, the resonance are still there. You know, the the, the effects of it. You know, and if you can get away with it in 1877, you can get away with it in 2018, unless and until somebody says enough. What do you think, I mean, I'm kind of asking you to go into the ether now a little bit, but what do you think, is is there a way forward? Do you see a way forward to move past Reconstruction finally, now that we're 140, 50 some years out? I think it's what we talked about, this awakening, that that this awakening that we talked about in the context of the Second Great Awakening is not a religious revival, but it's a it's a citizenship revival that we have for too long taken the freedom and the rights we have as citizens as for granted until something comes along and now our democracy is really seriously threatened. Our first season has now concluded. We've done 28 episodes and these multiple themes. However, I'm going to ask you the same question that you ask all your guests. If there is one key takeaway image, thought, or impression you want our listeners to have, what is it? It is that this, uh, to put it very bluntly, this war never ended. Sure, they're not invading armies crossing state lines, but people are still shooting each other. Still, people, people are still running each other over at rallies. There is still the same issues of racism. There's still a struggle over gender equality and the, the power you know the uh, sexual politics plays in our in our interpersonal relationships. We are still every day living through what the Civil War kicked off. It just testifies to just what a profoundly transformative event it was, and makes our obligation as citizens. You know, I don't. I, you know, my theory is. We, we can't be responsible for what people did 160 years ago. It's just not, it's not right. You can't ask a person, you know, in the South today, well, you own, your family owned slaves 150 years ago, so you must be a racist. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's hogwash. What I do suggest, however, is that we learn about what happened, that we have an obligation to look at our, our history and by extension ourselves in a much more accurate mirror and, and stop practicing what I call fuzzy history, where we, we only buy into the narratives that, that suit us and, and not face the unpleasant, you know, some of the more unpleasant truths of how we got to where we are and what kind of a people we are. I mean, it just goes to the heart of, you know, who are we as American citizens? You know, what, what are our core values? And if, if they're what we say they are, then why are these issues still acting out, you know, being played out every single day? You got to start to ask some hard questions of yourself. I mean, just when you do, you know, work on yourself as an individual, you know, if you don't look yourself in the mirror and and try to be more reflective of yourself, I mean, you're not going to get anywhere. Well, it's the same thing with history, you know, history practice 
as a way of supporting a, a narrative as opposed to accurately showing what happened doesn't serve us. And then we are doomed to continue to just repeat these, these same patterns and, and then wonder why our democracy is, uh, you know, eroding around us. You know, <laughs> our bloodiest war is still being waged every single day. It never ended. And uh, we would be wise to uh, study it more, more honestly and, and with more courage. Well, I think that's a great thought to leave our listeners with. And I want to thank you, Antonio, for coming on the show, on your own show, <laughs> and, <laughs> and being part of um, this recap of the first season of Uncovering the Civil War. I've certainly had a lot of fun and feel very privileged to have been a part of this podcast. And um, I can't wait to see what we're going to do in season two. I know we've got some great topics coming up. So I hope our guests will come back and join us for the next season. In the meantime, I'd love to ask our listeners to leave us any comments, thoughts, or suggestions that you have, and we'd like to know what your key takeaways are from the podcast as well. So please feel free to leave us a review at wherever you listen to the podcast. And now, Antonio, if you could take us out in your usual manner, that would be great. Okay. And before I do, I want to thank you, uh, Chandra, and also my other producer, Joe Marsh, for doing an absolutely stellar job in helping me uh, put this together. And you, you both deserve a tremendous salute from me for helping to make this as good a show as I think it is. So thank you both. Um, so with that, I would like to say to all of our listeners, thank you for taking the time and having the curiosity to tune into another episode of Uncovering the Civil War. Please join us again. Until then, be safe and do good. This has been Uncovering the Civil War with your host, Antonio Elmali. For more information about our podcast, please visit uncoveringthecivilwar.com. This podcast is produced by Antonio Elmali, Chandra Years, and Joe Marsh. Music by Andrew Elmali. This podcast is the sole property of Antonio Elmali. Copyright 2018. No portion of this podcast may be reproduced, transmitted, sold, edited, broadcast, or reposted on the Internet without express written permission of the owner.